basically we need to know the five paths first. So there are levels of spiritual development. And they're what every person goes through to reach Buddhahood. And eventually all beings will go through all of these paths. And we don't know what path anybody else is on. Some of you may be on path five, some on path three, maybe path two. Like anyone you see in any Dharma class, you don't know. We think we know, but we really don't. So we'll go through all the five paths, and then we'll talk about bodhicitta. Okay, so the five paths say lamna. 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 Which is path five. Um, and these are five stages that you'll progress through in order to become enlightened. Five levels of spiritual development. So they're really useful because you can see where you are and where you're not. And, um, you know, it's a good judge of how close you are to where you want to get to go. So it's like a guide or a map or something like that. Um, so the first one, say Soklam. 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 Which means accumulation path. So this one is the path of accumulation. And real renunciation is reached on this path, which is very hard to reach. Um, it takes a very long time even to get to this first path, which... I mean, I know this, maybe all of you know this too, but it's not like it happens overnight, and it's not like it happens easily. And it's a, this is something that Geshe Michael said a few times during this, this course already, but he said it's very useful if someone close to you dies. And he talks about this example of a great, this great Tibetan Lama, Gampopa, and his wife died, and because of that, he got real renunciation. Um, and I guess he saw like his wife's uncle later and said what a great blessing it was that his <laughs> wife died and the uncle like threw dirt in his face or something. <laughs> <laughs> and we talked about this. It seems like we've had more than one class, but this is really only the second one. Yeah. <laughs> but if, you, if we think carefully about it, any good thing, just think of any good thing that you have in your life now. Um, we're healthy, maybe we have some good friends, a llama, our hair, even our face. If we have kids, house, a job, all of those things, we're going to lose them something will tear it away from us. And so it's just a, it's just a state where we start to be honest with ourselves. Renunciation is. It's in front of us all day long. And at a certain point, we just start to um, own up to what's in front of us all the time. Um, and sooner or later, everything will have to be totally erased. Nobody will remember you, your name, your pictures, nothing like that. Even, even though we have Facebook and online, nobody's, it's going to be like when we look at 
pictures of people from the 20s and we're like, oh, whatever, those are just people from the 20s. Like, who knows who they are? <laughs> or old photos. Even one year after we die, there won't be much of a trace. So it's all going to be torn away from us. And I'm, I'm not 43 yet, but Gish Michael says in this class, when you start to get around 43, you can't avoid it. You just have to admit it. And when His Holiness was questioned about the depressing ideas in Buddhism, he said that it's liberating because you quit lying to yourself, which I imagine would feel really nice. I haven't reached that point, so I don't know yet. So when you get that understanding, you get so glum. And I kind of think for, uh, for us in a way, at least in my experience, there's a way where we don't really want that because we're so used to going after everything in life and we still think that there's going to be happiness there. So there's a way where renunciation, we're like, no, I don't want that in a way, I think. Um, but from everything I've heard and even the times I don't think I've really ever come close but even the times where I haven't been so attached it's just such a relief even those small times where I'm not like grasping at everything and I can just like relax even if it's just a little bit so I can't even imagine what a relief it would be like to be completely free of that deluded way of trying to make my world work exactly the way I want it to and like micromanaging everything it's just exhausting like it's a lot of work for um, that doesn't need to be done I think the second one say Jorlam Jorlam and this one is path of preparation it's marked by four stages but here we begin to understand more about emptiness within each stage. Intellectually, we'll start to understand the idea of emptiness, and we're pr preparing for tonglam. And this one, I actually think that this second one sounds easier than the first, because it's getting a deeper and deeper understanding of emptiness, like through studying and you know, having more and more experience with it. It's, it seems like easier to do to me than the first one. And so, as we're understanding emptiness more and more and more, then it leads to path three. Say, Tonglam. 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 Which is seeing path. And this is the path of seeing, which we hear so much about. And this is where we'll see emptiness directly in the first instant of the path of seeing. That's when we see emptiness directly. While in very deep meditation, it's not an intellectual understanding. It's purely direct and non-conceptual. Seeing the emptiness of your own mind, not thinking about the emptiness. So there's not like there's not the me there at all. And maybe we've had little tastes of this, like in a a, a deeper meditation. You know, like to some to some degree where there's not like as much of a, a me there. You're maybe in like a different frame of mind or something like that. And this one lasts about 15 to 20 minutes. The second part 
of the path of seeing is what you experience when you come out of the direct perception of emptiness. Until you come out, you can't even say to yourself, I saw emptiness, because you're not there in that way. It's only after you come out that you think, oh my gosh, I just saw emptiness. Awesome. I got to that part of the path. So, and because we've studied all this, we know where we are relative to the end of the path, too. Um, but even if, even if we didn't, after that experience, we would see how far we have to go or how long we have to go until we're fully enlightened as well. We see emptiness directly, and then all these amazing things lead us to path four, which is gomlam. Gomlam. Which means habituation path. And this is the path of habituation. And gom, we talked about, or Keith talked about this a little last night in class. Um, It's also the word used for meditate, but it's used for meditation because you're habituating your mind to meditation. And in this path, you're getting used to what you saw during the path of seeing. And you're applying everything that you saw in the path of seeing to your everyday life. And it's very typical for there to be seven lifetimes after you see emptiness directly. You'll have seven lifetimes left to go until you reach Buddhahood. And as a result of this, of this path, when you're done with this one, then you're able to reach the fifth path. Say, Mi Lob Lam. Mi Lob Lam. Mi Lob Lam. No more study path. So, this is the path of no more learning. And this path is a little different because this, it's actually a result. If you have bodhicitta at, when you reach this level, then you reach total Buddhahood. If not, you reach nirvana. And the definition of nirvana is to basically eliminate bad results in their entirety. So it's the stopping of all your bad thoughts, which is dependent on realizing something one by one after you see emptiness directly. Do you know what those one by one things are that you realize after you see emptiness? So you see emptiness directly and then one by one you're going to realize a few things which are the four are your truths. So the first part you see the direct perception of emptiness then right after that For the rest of the day, you have these extraordinary understandings come to you. And they can be grouped by the four Arya truths. And they can only be seen directly by someone who has the direct perception of emptiness. We can talk about the four Arya truths, but we're not seeing them in this way unless we've had the direct perception of emptiness already. So in that one day, you understand the contents of the entire Buddhist canon absolutely perfectly, which is amazing. It's huge. There's so much to learn. 
There's so many different teachings. It's saying the entire Buddhist canon. It's not just saying Tibetan Buddhism or, you know, Mahayana Buddhism or the Glupa lineage. The entire Buddhist canon. Absolutely perfectly. And the difference between total enlightenment and nirvana, in total enlightenment, there's a whole transformation of your body and mind. For total enlightenment, the body changes and you see every object in the universe in one instant. Everything that will exist, did exist, or does exist. All at once. And all of our minds have this emptiness, which is like some total peace. But the emptiness connected to the mind that has seen emptiness directly is, very, is a very special emptiness. You're seeing the emptiness of the Buddha's mind or the Dharmakaya. And then after you see that, the next millisecond, due to your new state of mind, you can show bodies or emanate bodies on every planet in the universe simultaneously if people are ready to see you. You just show up there automatically. Every planet in the universe. You show up there. And that's the Nirmanakaya. And that's what the path of no more learning is, basically. If you have bodhicitta, when you have the direct perception of emptiness. You can get there just through meditating. And meditating a lot and really well. It's not I don't think you necessarily have to have compassion or like wanting to help all beings, but I, I'm pretty sure I've heard, heard that it's a big debate. You know, like everything <laughs> that we talk about, it's a big debate. <laughs> and I've heard it both ways, that, that you could just reach nirvana and not reach total Buddhahood, that that's even, even possible. That like when you're getting so far along the path that it's like either you couldn't get there without this love for all beings or it brings about this love for all beings. I don't know for sure about that one, but that's how I that's how I remember it. The last path here is the final result or the ultimate goal. And then this is the definition that Maitreya, Lord Maitreya, gives in the Abhisamaya Alamkara. He says, Semke Pani, Shenden Chir, Yangdak Zukpe, Jongchubdu. Semke Pani, Shenden Chir, Yangdak Zukpe, Jongchubdu. Sem ke pani wish for enlightenment, shenden cheer, for sake of all beings, yang dak sokpe jong total enlightenment, want to reach is due. This is a desire to reach total enlightenment for the benefit of all beings.
And it's extremely difficult to reach bodhicitta. It's maybe one in a million who do. And I think too, that's what the that's what the tantric path is for. It, because in the tantric practices, you can reach enlightenment in this lifetime. The shortest amount, well, in one way, the shortest amount is three years, three months, and three days. So that's why you would want to study Tantra, because it's like rocket fuel for your practice, which has a lot of risks to it. I mean, like using rocket fuel, you can imagine. And the payoff is really big, too. So it's something that um, (coughs) I think that not everybody wants to do, actually. But if our bodhicitta is really strong, it seems to me that it's the natural result because, or the natural desire is to do that because um, all of these people are suffering and they're just going to be suffering longer and longer the longer we're not getting to enlightenment. Because there's people who are waiting for each of us to help them, teach them, guide them. So if that wish is strong enough, I think it would be like the natural result that we'd want to study Tantra to get there faster for other beings. Like that's the reason that you would want to do it, really. Because if it's just for ourselves, we don't really care that much, you know? Like we're, we're used to our suffering in a way and we'll get there when we get there, kind of. <laughs> but if there's like a million like universes planets of people waiting for us, then it kind of ups the intensity or the um, urgency. Um, And then there's this bodhicitta that we feel after seeing emptiness directly. And it's this very special instance of bodhicitta. And it's very different from general bodhicitta. And these are, this is what it relates to. It relates to two types of wisdom. And the first type, say Nyamshak Yeshe. Nyamshak Yeshe. Nyamshak Yeshe. Nyamshak Yeshe. So it relates to number one, meditation. And this is the wisdom attained in extremely deep meditation, the direct, extremely deep wisdom perception of emptiness. And we have to get to this level because it's impossible to have the direct perception of emptiness if we don't. So if we don't get to this level and we have to be practicing one to two hours per day to get to this point, which actually isn't that long. Like one hour, I mean, it's like one to two, but on the low end. So if we want to disqualify ourselves permanently from ever reaching that point, then don't meditate one to two hours per day. <laughs> so that's, that's the basic qualification. And this, we don't, okay, so when we're seeing the direct perception of emptiness, we don't have any perception of the passage of time. We're in the direct and singular perception of emptiness, and that's all we can be aware of at that moment. 
And if you think about it, I, I think it's, it's trippy to think about time in that way. I think he mentions it later in this class too. I think we'll talk about it. But we have this perception of time because our karmic seeds are ripening so quickly. So they're ripening like one after another after another. And so we have this perception of time because of that. But I think even when we're meditating or at different times, we get the sense of timelessness. And it's completely arbitrary. You fly across the world and it's two hours different. If time was really there, it could not do that. It couldn't just change like that. And sometimes time seems like it goes by really fast, sometimes really slow. So it's obviously not the set thing that we think it is. Like something that we can grasp onto the minutes, the seconds, the hours, the years. It's just not. And I, I feel like, too, the older you get, things it does start to go by faster, too. Or, you know, when you're busier, it goes by really fast. So it's, I don't know, I think time's really interesting to think about. So we have direct perception of emptiness, and then 20 to 30 minutes later, we start to come out of it. And there's this physical sense of descending because your mind's coming back into the desire realm. And then we get this very joyful thought, oh my gosh, I did it, I saw emptiness directly. And then at that point, we're conceptualizing again. And we're aware that what we saw was the Dharmakaya of the Buddha. And in that next moment, we're thinking that great Buddhas really do exist. We know that at that point, which we don't really know that now. Probably all of us think that they do, and we have like a pretty strong feeling, maybe even like some experiences that point to it. But knowing for sure, we haven't, we haven't seen it yet. At least I haven't. And so up to that moment, because we haven't seen it directly, after that moment, we can confirm that Buddhas do exist. We know that. And then we also know that Buddhism's true. And out of all the paths in this world, Buddhism is true. And you have this very strong emotion that Buddhism is the way. Not that this isn't like dissing other religions or something like that, but you have that strong conviction, this is the path. And at this point, we'll see all our future lives, usually seven lives left until Buddhahood. And we're aware in the seventh life that we'll achieve Buddhahood and they'll no longer call us by our name. So I'll no longer be called Heather. You'll no longer be called Jenny. We'll have a different name at that point. So you'll no longer be who you'll no longer be the same person. You'll no longer be Cheryl. I don't know if you know when you're born, like, is this my seventh life? You know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how it works like in that way. From what I know, just seeing um, different reincarnations of high lamas and that sort of thing 
they don't seem to know when they're when they're really young and then they kind of grow in and they study and they learn again and they just progress really quickly so it kind of seems to me that it would be like you might not know and then you'll you'll have like big realizations in that lifetime too throughout that whole life when you saw it you know at first then I think for that whole life you would know that things are not the way they're appearing to you and I don't know maybe you maybe you go back into that meditation easily maybe not I don't know that part it seems like you would because you had the um the skill and you knew how to get there one time so it seems like you could go back there again but I don't know if you need to be in no the stories I've heard you don't need to be in deep retreat or anything like that because Geshe Michael the example he uses is like you're um you're getting tea for your llama in the kitchen and um you're looking at the kettle and you see dependent origination so you see how you're labeling everything and then you just need to get to cushion quickly and then you see emptiness directly right after that and that's not in it doesn't from the way he tells the story it doesn't sound like he's in deep meditation it sounds like just like a normal well not a normal day but you know okay after that after we know we're going to have seven lifetimes left then we get a pramana or a sima where we know what we perceived was correct and for real it's not like we have the direct perception of emptiness and then we come out of it we're like i don't really believe that I'm not so sure. So it's, so it wouldn't be like that. We know for sure that was correct and that was real and nobody can ever talk us out of it. Period. The emotion of doubt is one of the very few mental afflictions that we'll never have again after the path of seeing. I know it'd be so great. No doubt. How amazing. So we're talking about the path of seeing here to get to the second one which is said je to byeshe je to byeshe and this is the wisdom that you attain just after the direct perception um it's the subsequent wisdom of emptiness if you're on the mahayana track then you have an extraordinary and geshe michael says it's almost orgasmic experience where you have this thought you have to help every living being mm-hmm. and it's as though a light or like a floodlight is emanating out of your chest or like a clear stream of crystal coming out of your heart and reaching out to every living being which sounds pretty amazing mm-hmm. and you know for the rest of your life you'll spend your entire life for other people and your whole being is aimed at helping others all your relationships, all your money, everything is for others. And at this point you'll see details in your future lives where you'll be taken care of by teachers, you'll have great parents, you'll have teachings, and it's got to be really great to be released from the attitude of just taking care of myself. And I don't even think that I mean maybe having I don't have I don't have kids, but Maybe having kids helps that a little bit, but 
we're just extending it to like one or two other people still, you know, it's not like you're extending it to all beings. It probably helps in that feeling, I'm guessing. Um, but none of us can say in this room. <laughs> but it's still, but you know, it's still not the same. Completely overcoming selfishness. And Geshe-la says, one minute of this feeling is worth everything. We'll no longer be a prisoner of that attitude where we're just looking out for ourselves. Which, for most of us, we're probably pretty good about thinking about others when we're feeling good and things are going well. And then as we get like more tired or hungry or grumpy or whatever, then we're just probably not as good at it. But in this, in this sense, or this idea of it, where we're having this experience of bodhicitta, then our entire rest of our life is for others. Which it kind of makes sense how it could be like that, because even just like going on, on retreat, afterwards, I feel like I have access to a lot more things than I normally do just from spending time in meditation. So it makes sense that you could, it's kind of like a little portal you can see in the way that you're going to be able to when you've reached the full goal. And really, the human heart in general wants this emotion of helping all other beings. And we all get frustrated that we can't have it. And it's something that our heart has been seeking our whole life And every time we take care of someone else, we get a little inkling of it. And in a way, I think we're probably just scared to do it as much as we would want to. Like, we'll do it in safe ways with people who it's okay to, to do it with, like a, a partner or family or, or closer friends. But, you know, even if we wanted to really take care of someone that we don't know as well, it's kind of like, I don't know if I should do this. Like, there's a hesitancy to it. At this point, any powerful bad deeds that we collected to go to lower realms are completely destroyed by this emotion. And that is, that's the power of bodhicitta, or the emotion of that. That it can completely destroy all those negativities. Which, if we've lived since beginningless time, think of all the bad deeds we've done... Any, like if they've been growing long enough, any of them could take us to a lower realm. And that, this moment of that strong love for all beings destroys all of that. So it's completely destroyed by that. And at this point, anyone can say and do anything to you that they want, but you know that you're going to be out of the suffering cycle in seven lives. So you know when you're going to be done. And you feel this intense urge to help other people do it too. And you also want to protect all of the teachings, all of the scripture. And I mean, just imagining, probably, I think intellectually all of us probably believe that we will become a Buddha, we will become enlightened. But at this point, you know that you will be, and you know when it's going to happen. 
It, I mean, it'd be so exciting, too. Yeah. Nice. yeah. <laughs> and as a Buddha, we'll sit there, we'll emanate or show bodies on every planet, and we'll help people. Which is just, you know, just blissful existence. If someone needs a friend and they have the right karma, we appear right next to them. And we're able to appear in the way that's helpful to them, we know what to do in order to help them. So we have to meditate one to two hours every day to reach that state. That's the pasana or My understanding, I kind of think that it's one to two hours of shamatha. That's, that's my sense. I'm, I know I've heard this, this question asked before. But that's really what's going to get us to the point where we can see emptiness directly. Not only that, but, but we have to have that in order to get there. I mean, we have to have Vipassana too, but that's like the basis of it. So that's my, that's my sense right now. Um, but I don't know for sure. Could be maybe like when we get to a certain state of shamatha, for a certain level, then the one to two hours we would be, you know, combining it with the pashtana or some analytical meditation. Because I know that doing, you know, like doing the preliminaries and all those steps before meditation, all of that is really important as well. I think it does something when combined with the shamatha. So I don't know if it would just be one or the other, actually. Moving on, we're now going to talk about the two kinds of bodhicitta. And this, so this description of the two kinds of bodhicitta specifically relates to seeing emptiness directly, not to general bodhicitta without seeing emptiness. First one, say Munsem. Munsem. This is the wish for enlightenment in the form of a prayer. This is the emotion that you'll devote all of your future lives to helping others. It's like planning and wanting to do it and having this ideal. Mm-hmm. And then number two, say Juksem. Juksem. Juksem is the wish for enlightenment in the form of action. All throughout the day, you're constantly looking around to see how you can help other people. It's not even a conscious thought, but just an undercurrent or an intention that infuses everything. At this point, it's not conscious, it's not a conscious thought, but to get to this point, we had to have the conscious thought for a while. So that what we're talking about now is specifically relating to seeing emptiness too. So not to general bodhicitta without seeing emptiness. So there is, yeah, there is a point where we're like practicing and trying and wanting, you know, planting the seeds to help other people and practicing and that sort of thing. But at this point, it's just... Without a conscious thought, it's like what's driving you. It's just there. 
And in some sense, after we practice, maybe like we want to work on helping someone at work or helping someone in our lives, something like that. Like, I remember I was with, I went to a movie with Elaine um, maybe a year ago or something like that. And we pulled up at this stoplight and there was this homeless person here asking for money and I wasn't going to do anything. But Elaine, like, without even thinking, she just reached down, grabbed a 20 and gave it to him. And that was, like, that's just her normal way of doing things. So for her, she's doing it, it seemed to me, without even thinking. She was just like, oh, this is what I do when this person comes. And she just did it, like, very clear and strongly. And then for me, I have, like, I'm wanting, I'm aspiring to do that. (laughs) And so I'm thinking about it, and I want to, and a lot of times I don't. And then there's, like, one time when I actually did and it felt really good, and it was like, oh, okay. So that's kind of like the two types. Like, my perception for her, it seemed like it was just automatic. She didn't think about it. That's what she does all the time. It's just, like, spontaneously arises, and that's what happens. In this sense, where it's not a conscious thought, where, like, it's an undercurrent to our whole lives, but we're practicing that at this point. So talking about different ways that we can make it work in our life to be able to give to people who ask is a way of practicing for that. And naturally, we're attracted to helping others in any way that we can from the moment that we wake up each day. So there's a Munsam ceremony, and then there's also a Juksam ceremony. Where you're taking the Bodhisattva vows, the Munsam ceremony, you're committing yourself to wanting to have the ideal. And really, I don't know if we've really done this, but this class is supposed to get you excited about Bodhicitta. And... So there's another thing that happens if you reach real bodhicitta. There's a certain effect on your mind stream. And we talked about suffering in the first class. There's certain forces that will rip everything nice that happens to us away from us. And these forces will kill one of us, all of us at a certain point, um, or we'll be separated from the things that we like, We'll be separated from each other at a certain point, too. There'll be a time where we'll have, like, a last class or, you know, one of us will die. That will happen. And these, these forces are the same forces that make us get old. And if we haven't gotten old yet, hope, you know, hopefully we live to be old. But it's not fun either. You know, like, your body starts hurting it seems like a lot of times more disease comes up. It's just like, it's not fun. And the thing is that there's a cause that's making this happen. When we were born, this cause created our body, and it's also destroying our body as we live, that same causes. Basically, our body will kill itself if something else doesn't. All of the elements are battling, and if one takes over, then we're out of balance and... In Tibetan medicine, 
all the organs have contradicting functions and one will overwhelm the others at a certain point. If the lungs and the power of cooling gets too strong, then we get pneumonia and we can die from that. If the stomach gets too strong with heating, we can get a fever and we can die from that. And it's just a question of which one wins out. Every kind of good thing that we have, these forces will destroy at a certain point. And what these things are, are karmic imprints that are at work in our life. So every time that we say, think, or do something, we're planting an imprint in our mind. Basically, in a finger snap, we have 64 discrete movements of mind. We're planting 64 different karmic seeds. It's really amazing. I'm not, I can't comprehend how that's possible, but... And then right now, all of those imprints that we planted in the past, they're ripening into our perception of this room, of each other, of every single thing in this room, of our body, the way we're feeling, the thoughts we're having. And there's this example in the scriptures. There's a pile of flower petals that are stacked on top of each other, and they're put on a bullseye. And the story is a very strong man strong man, pulls back the bow, and the arrow pierces the petals. And it looks like it pierces the petals all at once, but we understand that the petal on top was pierced first, and then the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth, all the way to the bullseye. And this is what I was talking about earlier. We have the impression of time passing because the seeds are ripening so quickly. And for us to all see what we're seeing right now, to see this class, to see this room, these teachings, we did some really big good virtue in the past, and as a result, we're seeing diamond light. And it's forced on us. It's not that we decided to see it, like we're willing it into, into existence right now. It's, it's just here because we planted the seeds in the past. And we can get a good sense of this when we have a, like a headache or a cold or something like that. We're not, it's not like we're choosing to have that in the moment. It's just there. And a lot of times we can't make it go away. Sometimes we can do something like maybe the aspirin works and it goes away. Or you know something will make it shift. But a lot of times it's just there and we can't, we can't get it go away. And this applies to our thoughts. And the laws of this process are totally amazing, and we've studied them. I think most of you have studied them. But the bottom line is that we have to plant really good imprints, and we need to take out all the bad imprints. That's what we're doing on the path. Planting good seeds, taking out the bad ones. So if we created a lousy good good imprint, then we'll have a lousy result, like a good latte for a few minutes. Something like something along those lines. If we gave someone a latte in the past, then we'll see that in the present. And every detail in our life is like this. And we can prove this the more we pay attention to it and the more we study it, we can start to prove it to ourselves. 
and we can also start to manipulate it. So if we know the laws of karma, we understand how seeds are planted, that everything's empty of any self-existence, then we can plant the seeds for whatever we want. We, if, if we wanted a million dollars, we could plant the seeds for that. If we wanted a certain house, we could plant the seeds for that. If we want total enlightenment, we can plant the seeds for that. And it's really like a waste of time to plant the seeds for anything other than enlightenment because along the path to enlightenment, we'll get everything else as well. Everything else will start to line up as we're moving along. As we're getting closer and closer, our life will also get closer and closer. But if we're doing deeds, we're not dedicating it to reaching full enlightenment. We're not planting the seeds for that. We're just planting the seeds for some lousy little thing to happen that's you know, going to be gone and then suffering will be there again. So we might as well plant the seeds for full enlightenment for the sake of all beings where along that path we're going to get all those other things anyways. But we're for sure sending you know, like a strong arrow that's going to pierce the center, the bullseye at a certain point which will be Buddhahood. <coughs> so even if we're really selfish and we only want things for ourselves, the best way to live our lives is doing everything for everyone else. That's what will bring us everything that we want. But you can do it out of self-interest. Yeah. So you can, oh. I want all of these things, so I'm going to give them away to everybody because it will plant yeah. the seeds for what I want. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, you can't be you can't be selfish. Yeah, but like we can we can think of it. I need to save for retirement so that I don't have to be dependent on someone else. Yeah, I'll be taken care of. I can then give you know like so I can serve people. So basically, we can we can design our future at any point in our life. We're only limited by the bad karma that we have or the bad seeds we have. So if we're not capable of feeling great faith or extreme devotion, that's the only way that Geshe says we might not be able to pull off enlightenment in this life. So if we feel like that's a challenge for us, then a lot of purification would be good. If you, if you feel like you're not capable of feeling great faith or extreme devotion then it might be difficult to pull off reaching enlightenment in this life. So if, if that seems like something that's like a challenge, then doing a lot of purification for that would be good. And one of the selling points for bodhicitta, well, I mean, ultimately it's going to lead us to the bliss of a Buddha paradise, you know, for the rest of, eternity or whatever so that's the ultimate selling point but along the way life will get better and better and we'll be happier and happier as well and like we've heard a million times how is being selfish really working for us so far 
Like we know what's down that path because we've gone down that path over and over and over again. And so we might as well try something different. And it, it doesn't have to look different in our lives necessarily. We can do a lot of things with just a different intention. And just be, you know, looking out for people in a different way and not so much focused on just like me, me, me. And then probably the action will, will look different as well. But at first we can just start with changing our mind a little bit and just like noticing other people and what, do, what would they like? You can look, you can notice what people look at first is almost always what they want if you ask them what they want. But then a lot of times they won't say it because they feel bad or something. So you can kind of just pay attention to other people and start to notice what they like. Like remember, and I think it's, personally I like doing this sort of thing. I think it's fun. But just like remembering what um, tea people like, what kind of coffee, asking them these questions in case you want to bring them something at some point. What kind of, do they like dessert? What's their diet? Do they like incense? You know, like, what are their favorite things? It's just fun noticing these things about people, too. And then you have um, a way to serve them. So when they come over to your house, you know what tea to get or what kind of food they like or, or what they like to do, what kind of movies they like, what's interesting to them. And you get to be a really good gift giver, too. And really, bodhicitta, (coughs) it's like the perfect imprint. Because we're planting this seed, or this imprint, and we're designing our future paradise. So by planting that seed, that's what's going to come from it. It's total paradise, a Buddha paradise. And all sentient beings for us is whomever we're next to all day long. Like all of us in this room are all sentient beings for, for each of us. It's whoever we live with, the people we work with. It's not like nameless, countless faces out there that we have no idea who they are. So we start with those people and then based on them we can start to expand and expand and expand. So it's not like we can intellectually be serving all living beings and then treating our coworker like crap. Like they're they're part of all sentient beings. And in a Buddha paradise, every single detail of every single perception, all of them are total bliss. Imagine the most pleasant moment you've ever had in this life and then multiply that by everything that you perceive. The color of your pants, um, the carpet, everything you drink or eat, everything is total bliss. Every single thing. This flower, the clock, the bowl, the cup, everything is total bliss. And if we leave one person out of this wish for enlightenment, we'll never reach Buddhahood because it won't ever be perfected. So we can't um, wish all beings happiness except for Donald Trump (laughs) or 
whoever the person is for you. Even if we just, which I don't think, I don't really think any of us do, but sometimes maybe we do, just want to be happy in this life, we really can't do it without caring for others. Even in like a, a normal way of looking at life, there, there's just not much happiness there. We have to do it through helping others. So that means that we need to be around other people in order to be helping them, in order to be planting these seeds. Which sometimes, you know, other people are annoying and maybe we don't want to be around them. But that's the only way we're going to plant the seeds to get to where we want to go. And what Bodhicitta can do is take this body which is totally doomed, and if we have a real Bodhicitta, we can transform this body into another body before we die. So the body of a Buddha. So if we reach enlightenment in this life, will others see that we've reached enlightenment? Will they? Be, can other people tell? And m- most probably not. If we're if they're not close to the experience themselves, they're not going to be able to see it. And in the same sense. There are beings in this world who are enlightened and we can't see it because we don't have the karmic seeds to see it. If we had the karmic seeds to see it, we would. But we don't, so we, so we don't see it. Until we're really close to that same state, the people around us, even if they're enlightened beings, we won't be able to tell. And not only that we wouldn't see, but we can't. We're not able to. And in a way, that's a good way to look at things that we don't really know who anybody is who's around us. We know what they say, what they tell us, but we can't read their mind. We don't know what they're seeing from their own side. And it is, it is possi- it's possible that I'm the last person to reach enlightenment and everybody else has already gotten there. <laughs> it is possible. Or maybe, like, this whole planet was created for me so that all these people can come and try to help me get there. So it, there's possibilities like that. We don't know for sure. Maybe everybody else is just a schmuck. I don't know for sure. <laughs> you don't know either way. So it's probably a more special and magical place to live thinking that there may be a Buddha which we can't confirm either of them why not think that they're special or you know there's amazing sacred things happening <laughs> <laughs>